0: and welcome back to America's Constitution, brought to you by Scholar. I'm Andy Lipka and I'm here with Akil Amar again. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. So today we're going to be doing the last of the four reading sessions um, with commentary uh, from the uh, Akil's new book, The Words That Made Us, which will be released in early May. And... Um, you know, one place to, to hear the podcast, uh, you can hear it you know, through podcast uh, services like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and so forth. But um, you can also hear it through the website, akilamar.com. Um, and it's uh, akilamar.com slash podcast hyphen two. And that, in some ways, is a, an ideal place to hear it because we have the show notes uh, and so forth. Plus, we have access to all sorts of other material. Um, you know, on the website. But actually, there's another reason, which is that when the book is released, the website's going to take on the character of of the author's website, You're going to include some uh, additional endnotes uh, and errata and things like that. And to our, our listeners, you can point out uh, possible errata yourself through the uh, facility we have on the website where you can leave questions or comments, and I, I'd really like to encourage you to do that both now and as we get into the into the book, um, after the book is released.
1: Yeah, so, so in that sense, the book will be crowdsourced just a bit. I'm sure there are mistakes in it, um, and if readers identify those mistakes, we can upload uh, the all the errata and, and keep that up to date, and, and uh, in so doing, maybe provide um, an exemplar for a new kind of scholarship going forward. The, the problem with a book is every book is going to have mistakes, and how do you f- how do you correct those um, so that so that those mistakes don't propagate into the next generation? And so, uh, Andy, with your uh, 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 inspiration, um, I, I think I'm trying to come up with a new model. Okay, you put the book out there, but when you find mistakes, you yeah, um, put them on a website that's connected to the book, and, and that can be continually um, updated. And so, um, it's uh, for, for those in uh, the law business, this is like the pocket part of a treatise that um, updates the treatise in light of uh, more recent developments.
0: And also, the, the website is a supplement because the book is long, um, and there are it has a, an academic quality as well as being, you know, readable by the general public. So there's quite a lot of endnotes, um, and some of the endnotes are actually quite important, uh, I believe, and and uh, they break new ground in terms of resolving disputes and so forth. So there may be a claim made in the bo- in the book which is you know, somewhat documented in the text, but there may be more extensive documentation. And if it's controversial, then, a, you know, an end note can, can be quite useful. But even there, there's a limit to just how, how long of an end note you want to put in a printed book. So by having the unlimited space that a website offers, we're able to expand on that. And I think that's a new model as well.
1: It is. We call it notes on notes, I think, in, in the printed book itself. Uh, one final thought. Um, uh, this is, of course, a book... About the Constitution, uh, the words that made us uh, America's constitutional conversation, 1760 to 1840. Um, Andy, you and I are doing a podcast about the Constitution. We call it America's Constitution. Uh, the website is very much about the Constitution, with all sorts of video links and and other resources. Um, the Constitution itself was crowdsourced. I use that phraseology in my books. You had a small group of people who came up with a proposal, and then they uh, launched it, um, uh, inviting other folks to say, yes, we do. And in the course of a year-long conversation up and down a continent, which ordinary people were allowed to speak and to vote on how they and their posterity would be governed, Mistakes in the document were identified. The constitution was crowdsourced, um, and um, uh, uh, and the text was was updated. Um, the the what we call the Bill of Rights actually grew out of the crowdsourcing in the ratification process, where, for example, lots of ordinary citizens up and down the continent, said, dudes, you forgot the rights. Um, These were smart people at Philadelphia, (laughs) George Washington, Ben Franklin, Hamilton, Madison, James Wilson, etc., and they did forget the rights, and those rights existed in most state constitutions and weren't part of the original proposed Philadelphia Constitution, but the Constitution was crowdsourced. There was another, actually, big glitch in the Constitution. It was just a mistake. Uh, The initial House of Representatives was actually way too small uh, compared to state uh, lower houses. In fact, if you read the text of the Constitution carefully, it suggests that uh, the House of Representatives could shrink permissibly uh, to include uh, one representative per state. So in theory, you could have had Um, Even after the first census, a house of representatives of 13 persons, smaller than the Senate, of which seven would be um, a quorum, of which four would be a majority of the quorum, uh, and and the text still reads that way. Um, uh, The only thing that's required is one representative per state, and so the text wasn't quite changed, um, uh, but in the crowdsourcing, uh, the Federalists basically committed themselves to a very different model of congressional size that's going to be implemented, uh, not through uh, a set of amendments, although the original First Amendment that was actually proposed by uh, the first Congress, sponsored by James Madison, was about congressional size. It just never um, uh, got enough... Uh, votes, state votes in the ratification process. Um, so, um, house size issue wasn't fixed by a formal constitutional amendment, but by an informal understanding that was implemented by all the earlier congresses and is now actually codified in a landmark statute that says the house is going to have 435 members.
0: So that's the the sort of constitutional nerddom that I think our uh, our audience appreciates. Um, you
1: You know, you, yes, this is a podcast for con law nerds, exactly so our our model, as we've mentioned at least once before, is kind of car talk, which is for car nerds,
0: yes, but of course, we also believe that anyone would become a constitutional nerd if they were uh, exposed to the podcast for long enough. So tell your friends, yes, um but you know by by the same token, I think when you read the readings that we've had um so far have not been focused on those sorts of details. Uh, They've been more historical and narrative, more presidential focused. Um, But I think that uh, there still is plenty of the Constitution in the book and cases and things like that, wouldn't you say? Yes.
1: um, This set of readings um, has been a little bit more biographical because I believe that one of the biggest things about the Constitution, and I didn't, understand that before i began researching and writing this book but the way in which it's most distinctive compared to the existing state constitutions is its supremely powerful executive branch um only one state governor has a part uh, a veto pen that is uh Uniquely his, just personal to him. In New York, the veto is wielded by a kind of council. Only in Massachusetts does the governor have uh, a veto pen. And the Massachusetts governor is elected annually. So four-year term, that's um, unheard of at the state level, re-eligible perpetually. That's not a typical feature of, of um, all the state constitutions. Uh, the veto pen, the strong Pardon, pen, commander in chief power, independent elections, so that you don't uh, from the legislature, so you don't have to always basically um, defer to and 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 flatter the existing legislators. Um, that's the biggest new thing in the Constitution, really, compared to uh, state precursors, is a strong executive. That's why a few podcasts ago we talked about how central Washington is. To the whole project. Well, once you understand that um, Washington is central to the project, it's Washington's Constitution, and therefore, and the presidency is really important. That's going to incline one—that is me as a as a writer—to tell the reader a lot about the early presidents. So, um, so these sets of readings—they've been very much about the central actor in the Constitution, the presidents. Um, and we've tried to tell that story, I've tried to tell that story in the, in the book and in these readings, narratively and biographically, by giving you lots of thick descriptions of Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and today um, we're going to um, bring Jackson into the conversation.
0: Speaking of strong presidents.
1: Indeed. So shall we start? Please. Uh, this first section is called Why Jackson? Born in 1767, Andrew Jackson was a child of the Revolution. Over the course of his public life, he offered his fellow Americans a synthesis of Washington and Jefferson. He was a triumphant general, like Washington, and a rural lawyer, like Jefferson, a staunch unionist, Washington, and a friend of legitimate states' rights, Jefferson, a commanding personality, Washington, and a man of the people, Jefferson, a scourge of the British, Washington, and a champion of New Orleans, Jefferson. And, like both Washington and Jefferson, he was a southern planter who owned hundreds of slaves. These parallels were not happenstance. The Constitution had created a fixed script with defined rules and roles for different actors. The most difficult role of all to enact was the American presidency. In the Constitution's first half-century, only three men, Washington, Jefferson, and Jackson, won the role and then played it well enough to satisfy both the high demands of their contemporaries and the harsh judgment of history. It is thus not utterly coincidental that these three had certain things in common. What was so great about these three? What are we to make of the fact that the five other presidents in the first half century fell short by comparison? Let's begin by defining sound criteria of presidential success and presidential greatness. First, to even have a shot at being a great president, one must, of course, win the presidency. Marshall and Story were lofty judicial figures, but obviously not great presidents. John, Marshall, and Joseph Story were lofty judicial figures, but obviously not great presidents. Likewise, John Jay and Alexander Hamilton might well have made great presidents, but we will never know. Ditto for the later perennial presidential aspirants such as Daniel Webster and Henry Clay. As shall soon become clear, we can nonetheless say with complete confidence that John C. Calhoun could never have made a great president. Though he stood a heartbeat away from the office for nearly eight years, his profound contempt for constitutional first principles made him utterly unfit for an office uniquely designed to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Second, seconds. It's hard to be reckoned a great president without a second term. Presidential success generally involves not just winning the office, but keeping it winning a second term after proving one's fitness in the first term. John Adams, as we've discussed before, cannot be deemed a great president because his countrymen threw him out of office, the judgment of his era, and rightly so, the judgment of history. No one eager to imprison peaceful and patriotic political critics can be deemed a great or even a very good president. Later one-term presidents in the first half century, John Quincy Adams and Martin Van Buren, did not disgrace themselves in office as did old Adams. But these presidents, too, failed to persuade their contemporaries to renew their four-year executive mansion leases. In the ultra-competitive Presidential Greatness Derby, the fact that these one-termers left office as losers places them in a category distinctly below Washington and Jefferson. A third point implicates war and national security. James Madison was not an appalling president. He did not imprison his critics before, during, or after the War of 1812, which he commenced with with congressional approval late in his first term. He won his second term, left office with popular support, and handed off power to a protege, James Monroe. But, on his watch... British troops sacked the national capital city and torched its iconic buildings in a war that Madison had elected to start without dire need or strong preparation, and that he ended without achieving any of his professed war aims. These facts make Madison inapt for Mount Rushmore. Madison's last years in office would likely have been far worse had it not been for General Andrew Jackson's emotionally satisfying but diplomatically moot victory over the British at New Orleans at war's end. The battle occurred on January 8, 1815, a fortnight after the belligerents signed a Christmas Eve peace at Ghent in Europe, but before word had reached America. Perhaps not every great president must understand war. Why wage war? When to wage war? How to wage war? How to win war? But surely a great wartime president must understand war, and Madison did not. Finally, presidential greatness requires some exceptional talent, some extraordinary strength of character, and or some grand achievement. Though James Monroe was reelected resoundingly, he was no great thinker and no great doer. Meh. Even the less-than-great Adams and Madison placed titans on the Supreme Court, John Marshall and Joseph Story. James Monroe named Smith Thompson. More meh. By contrast, each of America's three greatest early presidents performed heroic deeds before taking office and then did additionally impressive things in office.
0: So, um, talking about presidential greatness, um, this is the Amar schema of presidential greatness. Yes,
1: I, uh, presidential scholars um, play the ranking game. Um, uh, over the years, I've been polled from time to time um, about um, um, my uh, view of, of uh, who was good and who wasn't, and lots of other folks are polled, and then the results are released. And and Americans still, they, they, they like playing this game a little bit. Um, but I think there's actually a, um, a purpose behind it. And I remember when I was drafting some of this, you were asking, like, well, what, why does it matter who's up, who's down, who's great, who's not? And I said, oh, because we can actually try to learn uh, from... Uh, not just the ranking itself, but what made them good or less good? And are there lessons there? That was your word from a a couple of podcasts ago. Are there lessons there for for us today? Why was Adams not so great? Oh, he was only a one-termer. Well, why was he a one-termer? Oh, because he actually imprisoned his political critics, which was uh, what we talked about actually in our last two episodes. The Sedition Act... Made uh, and Adams's policies under it made him a bad president, and Jefferson's repudiation of the Sedition Act even before he was elected—you know—that was in effect his implicit platform. The platform of the Jeffersonians is where we oppose the Sedition Act. Um, that all those are factors for the greatness of Jefferson, and you know, his wasn't an uncomplicated. Um, uh, presidency uh, but but he opposed the Sedition Act and therefore gets elected and reelected. Adams supported the Sedition Act and forced it ruthlessly and got thrown out of office on his ass.
0: So you mentioned the the judgment of history as uh, in this uh, section as not quite a criterion but relevant um, and of course, one wonders how one can assess the judgment of history. Right. You know, we have revisionists, and it can change over time. Um, but, you know, we might we think of the judgment of history as the judgment of historians, but there's also an Amer- the American people's judgment in history. And I think uh, one might say what presidents are held up as models uh, currently for Uh, you know, candidates to be held up against. So you mentioned, I believe, in our first podcast that Americans are continually trying to uh, elect George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. And that was the uh, McCain-Obama, you know, uh, election, you know, reenacted. So do you you consider that to be a relevant uh, criterion as well?
1: Absolutely. And it may change over time. So you, you just nailed it, Andy. It's the judgment of historians over time, and historians change their mind. Historians used to think Andrew Johnson was ill-treated in uh, the imp- his impeachment, Andrew Johnson. Um, and that's what Jack Kennedy was taught when he was an undergrad at Harvard, and that's the basic thesis um, of a, a, an important section in Profiles in Courage. Um, and historians don't think that in general uh, today. The, the new revisionism, uh, synthesized by Eric Foner, embodied, let's say, in a recent book on the impeachers by Brenda Wineapple, very different view of Andrew Johnson, um, embedded a very different and more critical view in a nice biography, a very nice biography of Johnson uh, by Annette Gordon-Reed. So, yes, the judgment of history is partly the judgment of historians and that changes over time, historiography. But yes, the judgment of the American people subsequent to the president's terms is also a huge part of the judgment of history, and that changes over time, too, hence all the rankings um, uh, continually. Uh, and, and here are some pieces of evidence for that. Legal pieces of evidence, like the formal repudiation of the Sedition Act by an act of congress on july 4th 1840 which we mentioned before which is the 14th anniversary of the death of both adams and jefferson and this law is siding with jefferson against adams and and that's part of the judgment of history you and i have talked on many occasions you've brought it up on many occasions new york times versus sullivan where the modern supreme court um, the warren court repudiates the sedition act says was unconstitutional. I think maybe even uses the phrase that uh, the court of history. I think that phrase does appear in the, in the New York Times decision. And, and New York Times is a landmark case, and that's part of the judgment of history. So that's the judicial branch ab- above and beyond the House and the Senate that passed the 1840 law and the president who signed it. Okay. Um, um, I mentioned in just the, the excerpt I just read Mount Rushmore. Well, Mount Rushmore just didn't magically materialize. That was a political judgment made by the federal government um, that funded the whole project. Um, and, and Americans every day go and visit Mount Rushmore. And maybe if we were doing it today, I'm not sure that T- Teddy Roosevelt makes the cut and not say Ronald Reagan, um, um, but those all fact because history, uh, the judgment of history, changes as, as history proceeds. But yes, all of that is very relevant to me. So it's not just about my personal judgment. I am one historian, but it's not just about me. What do the other historians of my era think? What do the historians of previous era? What do they think? What does um, uh, Congress over time think? What does um, the Supreme Court, over time, think, um, um, what do ordinary Americans think, for example, in deciding which national parks to go to and which to boycott? Do they still draw inspiration from uh, Mount Rushmore?
0: One uh, one president that I think, I mean, this is a little off the subject, but um, I think we're both, you and I are both intrigued by this president, is... Uh, is John F. Kennedy. Now, there's a, a one-termer, obviously was not rejected by the American people in right. terms of re-election. Right. And yet, you know, the argument is made that uh, the Democrats keep trying to nominate John F. Kennedy, or at least to find him. Um, um, Biden is unusual, because the Democrats
1: tend to fall for the fresh face. The per- Except for Biden, Democrats in the modern era have won the first time they've run. Woodrow Wilson... Um, first time they run for the presidency, Woodrow Wilson, Franklin Roosevelt, Jack Kennedy. Um, Johnson is a little complicated because he was already an incumbent. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and Jimmy Carter, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, all fresh faces, and many of them post-JFK, kind of in the JFK model of the young new thing, the, 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 the new kid in town, the, the, the great hope. Um, and here's another thing about Kennedy, since um, if you're asking why he um, is such a template, um, and this is going to be a uh, a big theme in my last chapter of this book called Adjiz, how you leave the stage is really important. Dying well turns out to be really important. Um, so the the most dramatic example is... Abraham Lincoln, who is martyred on Good Friday in an overwhelmingly Christian nation, he's not a conventional Christian. He's not a church-going Christian, but but he is martyred on Good Friday, and that takes on such significance. He's just won the war, which um, uh, consumed his entire time in office. He's so achieved his main purpose. Um, there are going to be all sorts of problems uh, that are going to emerge, but, but he dies uh, before uh, uh, America has to confront all this. And so we just always ask ourselves, well, what would Lincoln have done? Wouldn't he have done a much better job than Andrew Johnson? Um, and he's succeeded by someone who's not so good. So he, he dies magnificently from the point of view of his reputation. Um Jack Kennedy is cut down in the prime of life. We think not so much of what he did, although he did inspire us in many ways, um, but what he might have done. all prompts. Imagine in, the, in an alternative universe, um, imagine he even wins re-election and all sorts of sex scandals and other things come out, an early version of Me Too on his watch, um, imagine, in other words, that his image is kind of, in certain ways, tarnished uh, somewhat similar to what happened to Ted Kennedy. Would you think about him the same way? Um, so um, uh, just a few thoughts on, on presidential
0: reputation. Yes, and I'm sure we'll come back to that at, at some point. Um, and as I said,
1: in in the last chapter of the book, I bring each of my big six founders back on stage one last time to show you how they left the stage, how they died, because uh, each one actually is trying to t- trying to to die in a way that um, immortalizes them, uh, uh, and and so I tell a story about Benjamin Franklin and how he dies, George Washington and how he dies, the dual, um, uh, um, duel, D U E L death of. Alexander Hamilton, the dual D-U-A-L, deaths on the same day, the 50th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence of Adams and Jefferson, uh, and then Madison's death as the the last of the
0: big six. Yeah, it's quite something, really. So why don't we get back to Andrew Jackson? Consider first each presidential
1: titan's pre-presidential triumphs. In America's war of independence, Washington not only bested the world's most overwhelming military, but then dissolved his army and walked away from the absolute power that could have been his. Later, when summoned back into service by the urgent pleas of his countrymen, he quietly induced America's leading statesmen to craft an ambitious new constitution in his image and then quietly induced an entire continent of common voters to say, yes, we do twice. First, America ratified Washington's audacious constitution in a continental act of ordainment unprecedented in the annals of world history. Never had so many ordinary persons across so vast a land been invited to decide how they and their posterity would be governed. Never had so many been able to speak so freely, both pro and con, on a decision of such significance. And then, Americans said, yes, we do to Washington himself, by unanimously selecting him to lead the new nation. These were all astonishing achievements that would have immortalized Washington even had he died before inauguration. Next, consider Thomas Jefferson's pre-presidential accomplishments. True, the Virginia redhead did not single-handedly author the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson had not dined alone in 1776. But by 1800... Even before winning the presidency, Jefferson had won credit in the American popular mind and popular press as the author of the Declaration, and the July 4th text had come to be seen as the great event of July 1776, as distinct from the mere act of declaring independence on July 2nd. In 1776, John Adams had loomed large on July 2nd, even larger than Jefferson, as Adams himself never forgot. But in the ensuing decades, Adams lost the credit-claiming contest thanks mainly to Jefferson's first epic achievement, the creation of America's first national popular party, combining slick electioneering tactics with an affiliated newspaper network. In 1800 to 1801, Jefferson used the political machine that he had built to accomplish his second epic pre-presidential achievement, Resting the presidency away from an incumbent, and doing so by standing on a constitutional platform that would give him a principled presidential mandate, Jefferson's partisans insisted, correctly, that the Sedition Act was unconstitutional, that the American people themselves could have judged the constitutional matter in the 1800 election. All this was far more significant than anything that Adams had done in 1796 to win America's first contested presidential election. Adams had not done much because he was trapped in old-world thinking. He believed himself entitled to the presidency simply by dint of seniority and past public service. Adams disdained electioneering, sloganeering, partisanship, coalition building, and log rolling. Jefferson may not have loved all these things, but he and Madison did what they had to do to win call it hypocrisy, call it flexibility, or call it vision, Jefferson better foresaw and more easily embraced America's democratic future. And Jackson, though not of the same magnitude, his most notable pre-presidential accomplishments echoed Washington's and Jefferson's. First, like Washington, he bested the British on the battlefield in a conflict seen by both contemporaries and historians as a Second American War of Independence, a continuation of the contest that had begun in the 1760s and 1770s. In one purely symbolic way, Jackson's triumph at New Orleans was greater than any single military event in the Revolutionary War. Lexington and Concord were merely preliminary skirmishes. At Bunker Hill and Breed's Hill, the British drove Americans from the field, at a fierce cost. Washington's tactics at Dorchester Heights dislodged but did not damage the British fleet, which promptly sailed to other points of attack. In Brooklyn and Manhattan, Washington's troops did not prevail but merely survived, barely. The clashes at Trenton and Princeton boosted American morale, but they did not dramatically tip the scales from a strictly military point of view. Saratoga was a triumph. But the commanding American general there, Horatio Gates, was not a homegrown American Republican hero. And the other hero there was the future turncoat, Benedict Arnold. Monmouth was a tactical draw, and the Southern Theater a mixed bag. At Yorktown, Americans finally won decisively, but only thanks to the French all around on both land and sea. At New Orleans, by contrast, America alone Led by an authentic, homegrown American hero, Andrew Jackson, humiliated the British Army in a major European-style pitched battle. Britain suffered nearly 2,500 casualties and losses, killed, wounded, missing, or captured, compared to some 300 on the American side. America had decisively beaten Britain at its own game, and every American could henceforth hold his head high. True... Weeks earlier, the war had formally ended in a draw at the Ghent Peace Talks, with each belligerent agreeing to return to the status quo antebellum. At Ghent, Madison had failed to achieve any of his initial war aims. Britain continued to assert a right to search American ships on the high seas and to seize, impress, alleged British deserters. America pried no Canadian land loose from Britain, as Madison had all but promised at the outset. Nothing that happened at New Orleans altered the formal terms of peace, which the President and the Senate blessed in February 1815. Even so, New Orleans mattered, hugely. The War of 1812 was driven by American honor and American emotion. The passions that were on display in the 1761 Boston Courthouse continued to throb a half-century later in countless ways Americans felt demeaned by Britain. The British were arrogant, insolent bullies who treated their transatlantic cousins with contempt. At New Orleans, a homegrown Republican-American general and a homegrown Republican-American army at long last punished the British snobs and put them in their place. If Washington was America's answer to George III, if Marshall was Lord Mansfield's equal and a story would become the new nation's Blackstone. So Jackson was the new world's Wellington. The defeated general at New Orleans, who lost both the battle and his life, was in fact Wellington's high-born brother-in-law, Major General Sir Edward Pakenham. Several of Jackson's other notable pre-presidential achievements synthesized the best of Washington and Jefferson, as he used his military prowess and backcountry experience Washington, to add new lands to America's domain, Jefferson. In 1814, Jackson's forces smashed a band of Red Stick Creek Indians at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend in modern-day Alabama. Later that year, in the Treaty of Fort Jackson, named for the general himself, the Creeks ceded more than 20 million acres in central Alabama and southern Georgia to the victorious Americans. In 1817 to 1818, Jackson's troops chased Nettlesome, Seminole, and Creek warriors into West and East Florida, territory then claimed by Spain, and managed to grab control of the region. With American boots now on the ground and in charge, Spain eventually ceded the entire Gulf and Peninsula region to America, a huge acquisition of more than 40 million acres attributable to Jackson's muscular patriotism. Meanwhile, Jackson in late 1818 also negotiated the acquisition of some 7 million acres of fertile Chickasaw land between the Mississippi and Tennessee rivers in western Kentucky and western Tennessee. The Jackson Purchase, as it was called, cost America $300,000, less than 5 cents an acre, and won quick approval from the Congress and the President, James Monroe, who had himself helped negotiate the Louisiana Purchase back in 1803. Jackson's final impressive pre-presidential achievement recalled Jefferson more than Washington and indeed echoed Jefferson with startling precision. Like Jefferson, Jackson lost a close presidential contest to a Harvard-trained lawyer from Massachusetts named John hmm, Adams and then beat him in a rematch. Ousting an incumbent president was no small feat, The only person to do it before Jackson had been Jefferson, and both challengers succeeded via mass popular appeals, strong electioneering, newspaper networks, and a National Party machine. Jackson reinvented, renamed Democrats, and made permanent the National Democratic-Republican Party apparatus that Jefferson had previously created. Jackson was not merely a victorious general in the Washington tradition, but an ardent small-D Democrat, a champion of the working white man in the Jefferson tradition. Whereas Washington transcended party and region, Jefferson and Jackson won first as regional partisans, spokesmen for Southern and Western Democrats, arrayed against New England pride and pretension. Compared to the cosmopolitan and genteel Jefferson, Jackson was, however, more Western and rough-hewn, himself an embodiment of America's restless westward migration and raucous frontier culture.
0: You know, a lot of this section paints uh, Jackson as having a lot in common with earlier uh, successful presidents. Um, I think nowadays most people tend to think of Jackson as something new. Um, uh, I think they tend to think more of the, your last comment, that he's more rough, Western and rough-hewn. Um, would you say that though that in the day that his appeal was more the echo of the past as opposed to something new? I would say it's both. Um, So um, you, you hear the ways in which
1: he's a general like Washington, he's a man of the people like Jefferson. So those are old themes. Just as before we talked about how John McCain says, oh, I'm a virtuous reincarnation of... Uh, George Washington, or Barack Obama says, I'm uh, the second coming of Abraham Lincoln, or how we talked about in early episodes, Ulysses S. Grant and and Dwight Eisenhower are definitely in the Washington mold. So in that way, Jackson is a throwback, um, and he's recognizable because Americans are scripting They're they're casting directors, and they know who played Falstaff well, you know, in the previous play, and they're they're looking for, you know, a Falstaff character. You're a Hollywood person. You might craft a role for Robin Williams. The genie character in Aladdin was designed for Robin Williams, of course. You know, You, you may write a play um, or a, a screenplay all around the idea of getting Jack Nicholson to play a certain role, or Al Pacino, or whatever. Okay, so Americans know who were the successful presidents, and instinctively they're looking for someone like that. And and Jackson hits the note. He he checks the boxes. He 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 rings the bell. And and again, they may not even be fully aware of this uh, um, uh, individual Americans, but so he is a throwback to Washington and Jefferson but he's completely new in that um, he's much more western it's much more raucous he's going to be in certain ways a proto Lincoln a log cabin kind of guy he's not this cosmopolitan genteel elitist um, to the manner born um, a, a founding figure like a Jefferson or Washington and even Adams who's um the son of a farmer, so he's not you know highly born, early in life becomes a gentleman. He goes to Harvard at a time when very, very few people are college educated. Harvard graduates maybe three dozen people a year um, and uh, and uh, Adams marries into the um, uh, the Quincy family, which is a distinguished uh, New England family. So you know early in life, he's brought himself into the elite. Um, and, um, and Jackson will eventually become this gentleman. He'll have a huge plantation with hundreds of slaves, the hermitage, but in a much more lowborn, born um, raucous, western, log cabinish way.
0: Yeah, he runs as an outsider in many ways. And His persona, even though he isn't an outsider necessarily, his persona is that of an outsider.
1: And, and you used a word so unselfconsciously and correctly... Um, but let's just again highlight the difference. Your verb, he runs. George Washington doesn't run. He at best stands. Um, and Thomas Jefferson in 1796, maybe he he skips. But I would say he's not even running. Now he does run more vigorously in 1800. Um, and and Jackson is going to take that Jefferson model and um, and and. Pump it up a notch.
0: Also, I think something that you said about uh, the Battle of New Orleans, I think, uh, is important to think about. Um, you know, the victory is arguably, as you point out, militarily irrelevant. Um, you know, the, the terms of the peace have already been negotiated. It's mm-hmm. possible, I suppose, that the British could have defied them having, having won New Orleans if they had won. Mm, um, good point. Uh, but uh, and and after all, they they weren't all that uh, you know that strict about obeying some of the the uh, terms of the Treaty of Paris in terms of in, you know the forts in the west and and so forth. Absolutely. and
1: even if they formally abided by this peace, you know. You know, when you're having an argument with your spouse or something like that, oh, so find that argument is, oh, the next one begins or, hmm. or something. So you're right, actually. Think about the counterfactual, what might have happened if it had been a smashing British victory, controlling New Orleans and therefore having a chokehold over the entire region, um, the, the watershed from the Appalachians to the Rockies. That's a different world.
0: You're right. I mean, you could ask yourself, what would Donald Trump do in that situation? You know, you you can be sure that he that he would say, okay, you know, forget the last agreement. Here's the new agreement. Um, but at any rate, uh, nevertheless, if we grant that it that it didn't have definitive military significance, it became it was nevertheless important because it loomed large in the American consciousness. It made right. Americans, it helped Americans feel better uh, about themselves, and
1: it was about making. America great if not great again I think actually yes we could I think say making America great again we beat the British once and they haven't learned their lesson they're still bullying us we have to beat them again and beat them on our own without you know our big brothers
0: the French um uh in the end um uh, uh Helping us, yeah. I mean, I'm allergic to that that language, but uh, but at any rate, I you think can it's you more, can see it's more about conceiving America as great. In other words, it's America was not yet great at that point.
1: Americans huh. thought so, uh, and 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 part of the um, the conflict in the Revolutionary War and in the Second War of Independence is a cultural conflict because the americans feel that the that they're they're englishmen in america and they think their big brothers their their cousins are bullying them and disrespecting them and to miss all of that cultural um Mm honor-based um dynamic uh in both the first war of independence and the second is to miss something important i think
0: and I think, you know, we were talking about Kennedy before, and I think that this the same thing is, is true of Kennedy, that, uh, you know, his actual accomplishments legislatively and so forth are very small.
1: But it was in part about Americans' understanding of ourselves, um, uh, giving us a sense of, of mission and purpose and and national honor and, uh, and self-image. Uh, and you and I... Are big fans of Charlie Johnson um, who uh, helped uh, create at Yale a Grand Strategies program and you and I've talked about that uh, and and you're the one who actually reminds me uh, about Thucydides um, who's taught in a Grand Strategies uh, tradition and program and yes um uh, n- n- wars and nations go to war partly about their interest and partly uh, motivated by fear. But you are the one who keeps reminding me it's also all about honor. And Andrew Jackson's all about honor. Um, and and the wars of independence, both uh, the first and second uh, wars of independence, 1776 and 1812, are wars of honor in part.
0: And that too is a matter of the of the the rank and file, that they can feel their own sense of honor. So we should move on.
1: Once in office, each of America's three most successful early presidents continued to achieve. In the process, these three proved that in the right hands, the presidency as created by the Constitution could work rather well. President Washington launched and stabilized the Union. President Jefferson doubled its landmass and President Jackson preserved, protected, and defended the Constitution against nullifying extremists led by his own vice president, John C. Calhoun. Each of the three thus helped the Constitution pass a critical test early in the document's life cycle. Although the framers at Philadelphia had tried to learn from the past, they had also chosen to break with all previous historical experience. The Constitution and the presidency were truly novel, No prior democracy in history had ever aimed to span nearly so large a land over quite so heterogeneous a population. Various ancient republics and Britain had blended democratic ideas and institutions with major elements of hereditary political power. America aimed to repudiate hereditary rule entirely in all three branches of government. Hereditary slavery, which factored into apportionment rules, was the enormous exception could the Philadelphia blueprint actually work in practice, as its friends had hoped and predicted it would? President Washington proved that it could. But that was only the first great test. After all, the document and the presidency had been designed by and for Washington himself. After Adams's failed efforts to fill his predecessor's shoes, President Jefferson proved that the system could work for someone other than George Washington. That was the second great test. Then came the third great test. Could the system work for the next generation? Could America first produce and then identify new figures large enough to fill the enormous shoes of Article Two? Once in office, could presidents who were merely founding sons and not founding fathers do the job? Unlike British monarchs, American presidents would not be trained from birth to head the nation. Unlike British Prime Ministers after 1832, a year that saw major parliamentary reform, American presidents would not necessarily command the ongoing support of the national legislature, nor could they hide behind a collective and coalitional cabinet. Rather, Article II vested massive power in one man, alone, electable and reelectable independently of the Congress. Post-founding America would need to consistently produce and then consistently select presidents big enough to hold their own against possible assaults from powerful states and from Congresses perhaps controlled by captious critics and rivals. The Jackson presidency proved that the Constitution was indeed robust enough to work not merely for the founding generation, but for posterity.
0: You know, this is a very important issue that you identify here, the notion of the post-heroic generation, um, and that, of course, uh, you know, when, the, when all the great work was done, you know, when the, the, the revolution w- took place, the, uh, the, the war was won, the Constitution was, uh, was founded, the, the country was launched, you know, what does the next generation do for an encore? And this is not limited to this point in history. Uh, the, the generation in the 1950s uh, in Britain, for example, um, had to had to struggle with this, especially in that case with a country that had had lost its empire rather than one that was gaining it. And Jackson's presidency, as you say, is perhaps the first to face this this issue. And you know who identified that this as the issue and identified Jackson in particular as a as a key figure was Abraham Lincoln in the Lyceum Address of eighteen thirty eight, where he talks about the future of our democratic institutions and. The, the problem of the towering genius. And he's clearly referring to Andrew Jackson at this point, that someone that, is, that we have to watch out for, is being anointed by uh, as our hero to solve our problem of what do we do as the post-heroic generation. So given that kind of quandary, or, or how do you feel that Jackson measures up? Did, did did he exceed? Well, you don't really get into it right here, but did he, did he exceed his mandate? Uh, be- Know uh, or did he fulfill the role that this generation needed?
1: So there's this, if we were Freudian, um, Oedipal dynamic. We're now moving from founding fathers to founding sons. Jackson is, again, a transitional figure because he actually fights in the Revolutionary War, although at age 11 and 12. But, but he actually, he's born in 1767, and he actually is captured as a prisoner of war at age 11 or something um, uh, by an imperious Brit who actually splits his head open. Um, in, uh, and, and Jackson's brothers are killed in the Revolutionary War. His mother dies in the Revolutionary War. So in some ways... He's kind of a founding father, um, but, but he really is the next generation. He's, he's not, um, uh, he doesn't come to public prominence in um, the, the constitutional era. So that's this Oedipal dynamic. You've got a, a, an impressive father, and what do you do? What, what does the next generation do? And, and Lincoln does reflect on that powerfully in the Lyceum Address, and you and I are very much influenced by Lincoln. Um, and he is sort of talking about that dilemma. Now, in the Lyceum speech, maybe he's actually critical of Jackson in some ways. Remember, Lincoln is a Whig. The Whigs actually array themselves against Jackson. They, the very label of their party is um, an implicit argument that Jackson's acting too much like a king and the Whigs in England uh, you know, opposed um, um, uh, 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 imper- uh, kingly um, a tyranny. So Lincoln associates himself with the critics of Jackson, a young Lincoln, someone like Henry Clay. Um, But then later, as president, Lincoln is actually going to build on all sorts of um, precedents set by Andrew Jackson, resisting um, South Carolina in particular and their excesses of nullification and proto-secession on on Jackson's watch. And I'm just going to come to that in a minute. So once he's president... Lincoln is actually going to echo Jackson all sorts of ways. He's going to be um, the first president since Jackson to win a second term in a Jackson um, model in some ways. So, so we're going to see Lincoln's evolution um, early on. He's a critic of Jackson. Um, his role model is Henry Clay, who's the anti-Jackson, the, uh, one of the founders of the Whig Party. But as present, he's going to channel Jackson in interesting ways. And amazingly, we're going to hear that story, just that story about Lincoln's relationship to Clay and Lincoln's relationship to Jackson. Amazingly, we're going to hear that, actually, I think in in our next podcast, because we're going to be doing an interview with our our mutual friend, Mike Gerhardt, who has a book called Lincoln's Mentors. um, And it's about Lincoln's relationship to Henry Clay and to Andrew Jackson, in fact. Since you mentioned um, British um, in the in the 1950s, you got me hooked on The Crown. And I'm starting to watch these episodes all about Britain in the 1950s. And I hadn't read any of that uh, before I wrote the book. But The Crown is all about um, basically how you train le- and pick leaders, how you, how you um, develop them how, and how you find them. And, and written it's a monarchy system you're born into it and maybe actually the person who's born to rule is you know, not good at it um edward the eighth maybe or um you know many other uh, british monarchs but at least uh, many of them were trained from the beginning for this um and in america no no one's born to the office so they have to somehow figure out what to do and americans have to figure out whom to pick um, and so, so <clears throat> the, the the crown is all about sort of um, England's problems with its p- um, training and picking its leaders, and and here I'm meditating on the the, uh, the issue in America. So um, there there are some real interesting connections to the crown. I want to mention one other thing, Andy, uh, uh, because today actually is the 49th anniversary where. Um, uh, um, we're recording this podcast on the Ides of March, and it's the 49th anniversary of the Godfather movie. And some people have said, Godfather 1 is kind of like the crown. You know, Michael doesn't want to be the godfather, but he has to um, to, to protect the family. And, and Elizabeth, as a young child, didn't want to be monarch, but, but she has to. Um, and, and, and the crown is an office. And the godfather is an office, it's a position, it's a role that you have to occupy and inhabit, and that may crush you, forces you to maybe do certain things in your role that you may not want to do as a human being. Michael ends up um, having to destroy um, other members of his family, Fredo. Um, uh, and he may not want to do that, but he somehow persuades himself that he has to do that, that that's what the role demands. And, and Elizabeth um, has to do things that, that are betrayal in some ways of promises she's made to her sister, promises she's made to her father. So The Crown and The Godfather have these um, really interesting similarities. I, I think at least The Crown, the first season that have been commented on. Um, but because, Andy, you and I are huge Godfather fans, when I, when I wrote about Madison as not great president, I absolutely was thinking of Tom Hagen Um, when I said that maybe not all presidents need to understand war, but wartime presidents Mm -hmm. need to understand war. And, you know, that's the point that Tom Hagen maybe is an okay peacetime consigliere, but he's just not a great wartime consigliere. Um, And and as I wrote that, I think you and I actually talked about that passage um, in the context of the Godfather.
0: So we need more Sicilian presidents
1: in wartime. Alas the Philadelphia Constitution also had a fatal flaw, an Achilles' heel. Slavery was not merely tolerated, but privileged. Slave states would have extra electoral clout by dint of the slaves in their midst. Unlike the Constitution's rule that Congress could halt the importation of slaves from abroad in 1808, an option that Congress exercised at the end of the Jefferson era, the document made no provision for phasing out the Three-Fifths Clause. That clause formed the foundation not just of house apportionment, but also electoral college apportionment. Slave states would have extra seats in the electoral college because of their slaves. The more slaves, the more seats. After the Three-Fifths Clause notoriously provided Jefferson's margin of victory, Leading New Englanders urged that any potential 12th Amendment revising the rules of presidential and vice presidential election should also eliminate or phase out this mathematically unrepublican clause. Jeffersonians ignored these pleas, and Americans continued to give an inside track to its slaveocracy in its presidential election system. Until Lincoln, America's presidents were all Southern slaveholders or Northern appeasers including both Adamses, while in office. Prior to 1861, no sitting president, indeed not a single incumbent cabinet officer, ever called for slavery's eventual abolition, even gradually with full compensation to slave masters. In 1803 to 1804, President Jefferson, a Virginian, acquired vast new lands for America, but he took no steps at that magic moment to prevent slavery's spread. In 1820, President Monroe and other Virginians signed a bill, the Missouri Compromise, excluding slavery from some Western land while allowing slavery in other large tracts. Both of Virginia's senators opposed the slavery restriction, the so-called Thomas Amendment, named for Illinois Senator Jesse B. Thomas, excluding slavery from the Louisiana Purchase Territory, apart from Missouri, north of the latitude line 3630. In the House, nearly half of the no votes came from 18 Virginia members. In private correspondence, ex-presidents Jefferson and Madison sided with these Virginia reactionaries. Madison even questioned the constitutionality of the Prohibition. Centuries earlier, Virginia had lost her own virginity, And now many leading Virginians stopped insisting, as they once had, on preserving the virginity of America's West to the maximum extent possible. Old Madison's new position was particularly disappointing and outlandish and has been ignored or minimized by most of his admiring modern biographers. His new notion that Congress lacked authority to prohibit slavery in federal territory was utterly inconsistent with the Constitution's text, enactment history and early implementation under President Washington and his then Prime Minister, Madison himself. The document unequivocally gave Congress plenary power to regulate territories where no competing state law existed and thus federalism concerns were minimal. Here's the quote from the Constitution. Congress shall have power to make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory belonging to the United States. Unquote. Even before the Philadelphia Convention ended, the Confederation Congress, building on ideas initially proposed by none other than Thomas Jefferson, had prohibited slavery in the Northwest Territory. In the ratification process, leading anti-slavery Federalists, such as James Wilson, had publicly reassured anti-slavery Northerners that Congress under the Constitution would follow this template. True. Nothing in the Constitution guaranteed federal free soil, but surely nothing in it prohibited federal free soil. In 1788, no leading Federalist, North or South, publicly contradicted Wilson's claim that the new Congress could and would follow in the free soil footsteps of the old Congress. The following year, Washington, backed by House Leader Madison, proudly added his name to a Congressional Statute one of the first ten laws adopted under the new Constitution, reaffirming the Northwest Ordinance's free soil rules. In 1820, when President Monroe signed on to a statute that included the Thomas Amendment, none of his cabinet officers, not even South Carolina's John C. Calhoun, claimed that the free soil provisions were unconstitutional. Later... The Supreme Court, in its most infamous decision of all time, Dred Scott v. Sanford, would assert preposterously just that, that the Thomas Amendment's provisions and various other post-1789 efforts to exclude slavery from various federal territories were unconstitutional. A brilliant constitutional lawyer in Illinois, Abraham Lincoln, would rightly label this Dred Scott claim an astonisher, that's a quote, Lincoln would eventually win the presidency, in Jeffersonian fashion, on a platform condemning Dred Scott as every bit as constitutionally outrageous as the Sedition Act of 1798. Still later, Lincoln would become the first president since Jackson to win a second term. But Lincoln would come to power by running, in effect, against Jackson, The author of the infamous Dred Scott opinion, Roger Taney, was a former Jackson cabinet member placed on the court by Jackson himself. Two other members of the infamous Dred majority were also Jackson men. Jackson's election and re-election marked an important turning point in America's constitutional conversation on slavery. America's earlier presidents were deeply embarrassed by human bondage. Jackson was not. The early presidents hoped that the slavery issue might largely solve itself. If Congress halted the international slave trade, slavery would, they prayed, gradually wither away. But in fact, national policymakers could not solve the problem simply by looking east and south, simply by halting slave importation from Africa and the Caribbean after 1808. The West, too, was key. To end American slavery, the federal government would likely need to prevent the peculiar institution from spreading to virgin soil, and thus taking root in lands that would later join the system as slave states. Washington and Jefferson had often looked West, but Jackson was America's first truly Western president. If anyone understood the West, personally and viscerally, it was Andrew Jackson yet he took no steps to stop slavery's Western spread. On the contrary, he himself embodied slavery's Western spread, both personally and politically. Decennial census data available to Jackson conclusively proved that slavery was not withering away as initially hoped. Even after the formal end of slave importation from Africa and the Caribbean in 1808, America's slave population continued to mushroom because of natural increase. That is, homegrown American slaves, many of whom were born in or taken to America's western lands. In 1810, America had 1.2 million slaves. In 1820, 1.5 million. In 1830, 2 million. In 1840, 2.5 million. True, the percentage of Americans in bondage was trending downward, but at a snail's pace, from 16.4% in 1810 to 14.6% in 1840. On the key question of slavery, Jackson was not a great or even a good president. Born in South Carolina, America's most aggressively and shamelessly pro-slavery state, he eventually set up a cotton plantation Hermitage in his adopted state of Tennessee. He came to own hundreds of slaves and he did so by choice. Unlike his high born Virginia predecessors, Washington, Jefferson, and Madison, Jackson did not inherit his slaves or marry into them. He bought black humans unashamedly as a self made man on the rise and never freed any significant number in life or at death. His most important public choices mirrored his private ones. President Washington gave America Chief Justice John Jay. President Adams gave America Chief Justice John Marshall. And President Jackson gave America Chief Justice Roger Taney. The arc traced by America's three most successful early presidents thus evidenced a troubling trajectory that rather predictably ensued the powerful gravitational pull of the Three-Fifths Clause created at Philadelphia and consecrated by the Twelfth Amendment. All three of America's great early presidents were slaveholders. The first two came from Virginia, the third was more unequivocally Southern and Western, born in South Carolina and politically reborn in Tennessee. The negative trajectory of these three notable presidents spelled trouble for the fast-maturing nation. Washington was an increasingly embarrassed slaveholder. Jefferson was an increasingly unembarrassed slaveholder and Jackson was a proud slaveholder on this most critical issue Andrew Jackson was no George Washington.
0: so you you imply that uh, you know they say that uh, that if Congress halted the international slave trade, slavery would they pray, gradually wither away. Um, but it didn't, which mm-hmm. is what you show. Yeah. Um, so Th- why not? What, was, what were they wrong about? In other words, you know, what was their assumption that was proven, proven false? Uh,
1: one thing is I'm not sure that they uh, anticipated uh, Eli Whitney's cotton gin, how dramatically that would change the economics of cotton production and how fabulously lucrative cotton would end up being now. If we want to make excuses for them, we can say, "Well, they didn't anticipate that." But if we want to hold them to the proper standards, we could say, "Yeah, but prices go up and prices go down, and technology changes, and of course they saw all of that. So, so there was always a possibility of something like that. And there was always a possibility of some new technology that, in fact, would enable slavery to become even more profitable in." the non-slave states. So so they ran a big risk. Um, uh, but in a word, I would say they didn't anticipate cotton.
0: There may have been some willful blindness also. I mean, the notion that by ending the slave trade, that you're going to, you know, all you're doing then, well, not all you're doing, but some of what you're doing is creating an incentive to breed slaves domestically. You're increasing their value, and therefore, uh, you know, the, you, you're creating this economic structure which, uh, in some ways, is, is even more evil. Although the slave trade itself was a it was an abomination of its own.
1: Um, and on that, um, we might want to just uh, divide the ecosystem a little bit. So th- there are people who aren't slave uh, in- involved in the slave industry and they don't understand it so well. Um, and then there are the people who really understand it well, and, and they're the slaveholders. And they may have a, a, a you know. Uh, Um, a more cynical view of things. Who understands um, carbon prices today? Well, that would be big oil, big coal. Who understands um, pharmaceutical policy, uh, drug patents, um, uh, all all that? That's big pharma. Um, So um, uh, big slavery understands the economics of slavery better and keeps quiet about certain things because they're making money off of it. And the northerners who aren't in this industry piously hope that it'll go away but but they don't understand it perhaps as well as um as the people in the
0: industry and of course big slavery means south carolina
1: um and to not let other folks off the hook eventually it will come to mean big insurance um big banking in the north big shipping um uh uh um uh, even, if, even after big shipping stops, uh, which is in the north, shipping slaves, it's going to be shipping the product of slave labor the other direction, the p- cotton, from America to Europe. So Lincoln, in his second inaugural, um, is not letting anyone off the hook. He's saying, actually, lots of us have been um, complicit in this uh, famous distinction between the northern conscience wigs and, uh, and the cotton wigs. Indeed. Okay, so here's the last section. Um, It's called Abomination and Nullification. On other issues, however, Jackson was ardently and self-consciously Washingtonian. Jackson's inner Washington emerged most dramatically in opposition to various forms of disunionism preached by John C. Calhoun. Calhoun's core constitutional claims were absurd phantasmagorical creatures conjured up from the spirit world of his overactive imagination, hallucinations that flatly contradicted what the Constitution's text actually said, what its structure plainly meant, what the American people did, in fact, quite deliberately agreed to in 1788 when they said, yes, we do. Jackson, also a South Carolinian by birth and not one to back away from a fight, called Calhoun's bluff and stared him down in some of the most dramatic moments of American constitutional history. The drama began in 1828 when Congress passed a protective tariff bill. The Constitution plainly gave Congress sweeping power to tax imports and to do so not just to raise revenue, but also to promote national security. Quote, Congress have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, To pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Unbroken congressional practice, tracing back to the earliest days of the Constitutional Republic, confirmed that the text meant what it said, as did common sense. Protecting America's burgeoning industrial base would render the nation less dependent on European manufacturers less vulnerable to possible future British naval blockades and depredations, and better able to supply itself with necessaries in any war yet to come. The 1828 tariff was thus the very sort of law that a young Calhoun, an ardent war hawk and nationalist back in the 18-teens, had himself routinely supported in Congress. But Calhoun changed his stripes in the 1820s. Protective tariffs helped Northeastern manufacturers at the expense of South Carolinian consumers. Many South Carolinians hated the 1828 law, which they labeled a bill of abominations. Some also worried that notions of broad federal power might one day lead Congress to think it could abolish slavery, not just in the territories, but also in slave states. Given these home state sentiments, Calhoun needed to secure his political base. Over the course of a decade, he careened from extreme nationalism to its polar opposite. This was akin to Madison's shift in the early 1790s, but Calhoun's about face was far more vivid and violent. Even if there was nothing insincere about this reversal, it was inane. In 1828, Calhoun was Vice President of the United States under President John Quincy Adams, who signed the High Tariff Bill into law. A decade earlier, Calhoun and Adams had been warm friends in President Monroe's cabinet, much as Thomas Jefferson and John Adams had been close colleagues in the 1770s and 1780s. But the signing of the 1828 Tariff Act split John Q and John C every bit as dramatically as the signing of the 1798 Sedition Act had split John and Thomas. Vice President Calhoun responded just as Vice President Jefferson had, secretly authoring a tract championing state sovereignty and nullification as the proper response to federal unconstitutionality. This time, the tract was composed not for Kentucky, but South Carolina. Although the state legislature declined to enact the Vice President's clandestine handiwork, the lawmakers did order the printing and distribution of 5,000 copies of the document. The South Carolina Exposition and Protest of eighteen twenty eight was a conscious echo of an homage to Jefferson's Kentucky resolutions of seventeen ninety eight and seventeen ninety nine. To the states, respectively, each in its sovereign capacity is reserved the power by its veto or right of interposition to arrest the encroachment. Unquote, asserted the closeted Calhoun. Each state could thus nullify, that is, undo for its own citizens, any federal law that it and it alone deemed unconstitutional. Even if the rest of the Union strongly disagreed and responded with a formal constitutional amendment endorsed by two-thirds of each congressional house and three-quarters of the states, this would not end the matter. Here, Calhoun followed Jefferson's logic to its bitter end, even though Jefferson himself had not explicitly done so. If each state was indeed sovereign, Calhoun reasoned, it retained a right to exit, to trigger, quote, a dissolution of the political association as far as it is concerned, unquote. Calhoun also went further than Jefferson in one other regard. He was threatening immediate nullification and perhaps ultimate secession in response to an utterly anodyne and clearly constitutional statute. By contrast, Jefferson and Madison had rallied to resist a sedition act that was in fact unconstitutional and that threatened to shut down proper constitutional conversation itself, the very essence of the American constitutional project, the entire system's sine qua non. Over the next several years, the tariff law remained on the books. Jackson wrested the presidency from Adams in the election of 1828, while Calhoun won re election as vice president separately and independently the Twelfth Amendment. Jackson believed in limited federal power and legitimate states' rights. He, too, was a proud Jeffersonian. But nullification and secession were to him, as they had been to Washington, anathema. The strong unionism of both Washington and Jackson had common roots. Both battlefield generals understood that an indivisible union was essential to America's ability to repel Britain or France if necessary. Also, although the national security aspects of the 1828 Tariff Act may have failed to move most South Carolinians, they struck a chord with Jackson. Jackson and Calhoun thus had entirely different understandings of the founder's legacy. In 1830, at a Democratic Party Jefferson Day dinner, a partisan event in honor of the party's recently deceased founding father, Jackson rose to propose a toast. Fixing Calhoun with a steely gaze, as if in a duel, he raised his glass to, quote, our federal union, it must be preserved, unquote. This was pure Washington. Calhoun coolly countered with a Jeffersonian toast of his own, quote, the union next to our liberty, the most dear. May we all remember that it can only be preserved by respecting the rights of the states and distributing equally the benefit and burden of the Union. Over the next three years, the confrontation between the two native South Carolinians, both Scotch-Irish and both fierce, widened and burst into full view. In mid-1831, Calhoun issued public remarks from his Fort Hill home, proclaiming nullification as the fundamental principle of our system. In mid-1832, Jackson signed into law a revised tariff bill with gentler rates to placate South Carolina, but the state refused to back down. In late 1832, the state legislature called an ad hoc state convention that in turn purported to nullify both the 1828 and 1832 laws, declaring them unenforceable in South Carolina. Siding with his home state and home base, Calhoun promptly resigned from the vice presidency so that he could represent South Carolina as a U.S. senator. In his nullification proclamation of December 10, 1832, a declaration that deserves to be remembered today alongside other landmark presidential pronouncements, such as Washington's 1793 Neutrality Proclamation, and Lincoln's 1863 Emancipation Proclamation, Jackson responded with a forceful statement of first principles. Here's a long quote, but it's just vintage Jackson. Our social compact in express terms declares that the laws of the United States, its constitution and treaties made under it, are the supreme law of the land, and for greater caution adds that the judges in every state shall be bound thereby anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. If this nullification doctrine had been established at an earlier day, the Union would have been dissolved in its infancy. The doctrine of a state veto upon the laws of the Union carries with it internal evidence of its impracticable absurdity. And our constitutional history will afford abundant proof that it would have been repudiated with indignation had it been proposed to form a feature in our government. I consider, then, the power to annul a law of the United States assumed by one state, incompatible with the existence of the Union, contradicted expressly by the letter of the Constitution, unauthorized by its spirit, inconsistent with every principle on which it was founded, and destructive of the great object for which it was formed. Jackson went on to wrap himself in the mantle of George Washington and make a classic and compelling originalist argument. That is an argument based on the Constitution's text and structure and the original understanding of the American people in 1788 when they had agreed to the document. Here's another long quote from Jackson. Did the name of Washington sanction? Did the states deliberately ratify such an anomaly, that is nullification, In the history of fundamental legislation, no, we were not mistaken. The letter of this great instrument is free from this radical fault. Its language directly contradicts the imputation. Its spirit, its evident intent contradicts it. No, we did not err. Our Constitution does not contain the absurdity of giving power to make laws and another power to resist them. The sages whose memory will always be reverenced have given us a practical and, as they hoped, a permanent constitutional compact. The father of his country did not affix his revered name to so palpable an absurdity, nor did the states, when they severally ratified it, do so under the impression that a veto on the laws of the United States was reserved to them, or that they could exercise it by application." Search the debates in all conventions. Examine the speeches of all those zealous opposers of federal authority. Look at the amendments that were proposed. They are all silent, not a syllable uttered, not a vote given, not a motion made to correct the explicit supremacy given to the laws of the Union over those of the states, or to show that implication, as now contended, could defeat it. No, we have not erred. The Constitution is still the object of our reverence, the bond of our union, our defense in danger, the source of our prosperity and peace. It shall descend, as we have received it, uncorrupted by sophistical construction to our posterity. As I said, just pure originalism. Jackson also responded with military and legal force. He sent naval warships into Charleston Harbor and threatened to prosecute and hang Calhoun, or anyone else resisting proper federal authority for treason. In February 1833, Congress passed, over Senator Calhoun's vociferous objections, a forced bill expanding federal court jurisdiction in revenue cases and authorizing broad use of federal military power to overcome local efforts to obstruct federal law or federal officers. Like 1800, 1832 was a presidential election year. In 1800, Americans had sided with the opponents of the recent Sedition Act. In 1832, the nation overwhelmingly backed the supporters of the recent Tariff Act. Jackson won re-election by a wide margin, with 55% of the popular vote and 76% of the electoral vote. Roughly 37% of the popular vote and 17% of the electoral vote went to another nationalist candidate, Henry Clay. John Floyd, a Calhoun ally, got no popular votes at all and won a paltry 4% of the total electoral vote, all of which came from South Carolina, where the legislature directly picked electors and did not allow common voters to weigh in. Meanwhile, Calhoun himself was dumped from the National Democratic ticket in favor of Martin Van Buren, who became Jackson's new vice president in 1833. Van Buren went on to win the presidency in his own right in 1836, as Jackson's hand-picked successor. In all of this, America, in effect, once again, voted for George Washington.
0: So later, 30 years later, we'll have the secession crisis and harkens back to this. You know, at that point, secession spread like a virus. But here, the nullification appeared to be confined largely to South Carolina. Do you attribute that to the decisive action by Jackson, or some other factor?
1: Well, it's you know hard you know the what if the counterfactual. So if Buchanan, who was president when South Carolina um, pulled its stunt in uh, December of 1860 and early 1861, this is the lame duck problem that we talked about before. If Buchanan hadn't been pusillanimous, if he had had a, um, a a backbone of steel, like Andrew Jackson, would South Carolina have been once again isolated and forced to back down? We will never know. He didn't try. Um, by the time Lincoln takes office, it's later in the game, and South Carolina has stolen a march. It's, it's um, gotten um, uh, other southern states uh, on, on board. Um, uh, Lincoln uh, eventually is going to respond with force and invoke at every turn Andy Jackson's proclamation and example. And indeed, and I think we can tell our, our audience now that, um, uh, our n- next podcast, I think is going to feature an interview with the great Mike Gerhardt, who has a new book out about Lincoln entitled Lincoln's mentors. And, uh, And Mike identifies five mentors in particular, and some that you might not have guessed, and one of them is none other than Andrew Jackson, because Mike recognizes that as president, when it comes to unionism, Lincoln is going to stand not just on the shoulders of George Washington, but very much on the shoulders of Andrew Jackson. Um, and, and, and Mike's going to share that story with us and other stories um, in our next podcast. We've, we've already um, taped the interview um, and uh, can't wait to share it with our audience.
0: So we'll leave you with that, with the anticipation of, uh, of, of an, a fascinating interview on this new book and also on uh, Professor Gerhardt's uh, expertise on impeachment as well. But for now, uh, there's also way more about Andrew Jackson um, you know, you might say, well, "What about the Indians?" You know, <laughs> it's in there, um, and but I guess you just have to wait for the book,
1: um, which is available for pre-order.
0: Yes, indeed, Amazon.com among other places. So, thank you, Akil. Thanks as always, Andy.